and we look to the Lord in prayer. Now, Father, thank you. Thank you that over these past couple of years when we've studied 2 Corinthians and the Newer Testament, and now this year, Job and the Older Testament, we're able to see how we can minister to people who've been caught in the storms of life. Maybe that's where some of us are at today. We're looking for refuge. We're looking for a place to go. Job had to have felt that way at his ash heap, and he must have felt extraordinarily vulnerable when the people he thought would minister to his needs, in fact, were adding to his needs. And maybe that's where some of us are at today. So, Father, again, as we explore the final verses of this incredible book, we realize the significance of what's here and how it relates to modern-day life. So, Father, we're praying still once again that you would warm these hearts, that you engage these wills, shape these minds, gauge these wills, Father, because now once again we've come here to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Well, we're told that it happened in southern Alabama. These people, the farmers there, were accustomed, you see, to planting one crop each year, and that crop was cotton. They'd plow as much ground as they could year after year to plant their crop, and they lived by cotton. They died by cotton. But one year, their dreaded full the boll weevil arrived on the scene, devastated the entire farming region. Well, the next year, the farmers mortgaged their homes and planted cotton again, hoping that this go-around would be better than the prior year. But as the cotton began to grow, the insect came back and once again destroyed the crop, wiping out now most of the farms. What do you do? It's your third go-around. What you going to say? What's your plan of action? Well, the few who survived those two years, the bull weevil, decided that they were going to experiment in the third year. And so they planted something different, something that they had never planted before, peanuts. And peanuts proved so hardy and the market proved to be so ravenous for their product that the farmers who survived the first two years were able to reap the profits in that third year and pay off all of their debts. And they planted peanuts again from that point on and the region became very prosperous. So you know what these farmers did? Well, they spent some of their town square money and put up a monument to the boll weevil. Because if it hadn't been for the boll weevil, they would never have discovered peanuts. And out of this, they realized that out of something bad can come something good. Now, it's very possible that what you are experiencing or have experienced or what appears to be 
something bad coming your way, a storm cloud in the horizon, you're looking at this and saying, this is bad. Where can I find something good out of this? What you and I find in the book of Job is that Job, in essence, is longing for a sense of reversal. Everything is heading in the wrong direction, so it seems, and if only somebody could turn this ship around and move it in the right direction. And maybe that's where you're at this morning, and you're longing for some way, shape, or form, whether it be in the family, in the workplace, in education, in your own health, or just in your own relationships, a reversal. I want to draw out for you, summary day, two significant considerations here that help us to better understand this when people are going through hard times. And the first comes out of 7 through 9, that while longing for reversal in the midst of our trials, I want you first of all to consider with me the terms here that God uses to describe his people. And beginning now in verse 7, you and I find these words. After the Lord had spoken to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. What you and I are about to find here in verses 7 through 9, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times, God is going to use the term my servant Job to describe this individual who's going through extraordinary times. He is not going to say my servants Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, even though they are the counselors, but rather the one that they had assumed all along had brought upon his suffering because of his supposed sin, the reality of the situation is that they are the ones, in fact, that are going to have to listen in as God says, my servant Job, he's the one that has been loyal, not you guys. Now, here's what's interesting. The phrase, my servant, is used throughout the Old Testament to describe extraordinary leaders in their times. In Genesis chapter 26, verse 24, God speaks of my servant Abraham. In, in Exodus chapter 14, verse 31, God speaks of my servant Moses. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 5, God speaks of my servant David. In Isaiah chapter 20, verse 3, God speaks of my servant Isaiah. In each case, what God is doing is saying, here is somebody who in the midst of the challenges and the difficulties and the extremes of life, and each of those individuals experienced such things. He's loyal. Now, when you're looking at your trials and your challenges, one of the tests in the midst of the trials is to evaluate your degree of loyalty to the Lord. Do you find yourself distancing yourself from God? Or you find yourself being drawn closer to God in your worship of God in the midst of the trials of life that come your way? Four times he speaks of my servant Job. 
And you say, Gary, that sounds incredibly familiar on your right. In that cosmic courtroom of Job chapter 1, when the evil one had appeared on the scene, we're told that the Lord said to Satan in verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? And now in chapter 2, furthermore, in verse 3, the evil one appeared a second time, and the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? What's going on here? In the cosmic courtroom, God was identifying Job as loyal. But the evil one, in essence, was saying, but Job hasn't been tested. He hasn't gone through trials. He'll dislodge himself from you, God, and he will no longer be loyal. Take away his blessings, and you will then lose the loyalty. Subsequent chapters, Job remains loyal to God. Oh, he still views what God is doing to him as unfair, but he remains loyal, even though he's got some thinking that needs to be corrected which is typical of people who are going through hard times. But now in chapter 42, four times now, the Lord who had said to the evil one, my servant Job, now says to the religious counselors, my servant Job. At this point then, what he is doing is he is making a cosmic statement in both the before and the after of Job's trials. Check out his loyalty. Check out his loyalty. Which tells me that when you and I are going through times of suffering and trials, there is a greater audience involved in examining your sense of loyalty than you and I can possibly begin to imagine because the entire cosmic realm was anticipating that moment when Job might curse God and die, which was, in fact, the recommendation of Job's wife. But through it all, what we find here is that Job remains loyal to the Lord. And just as there's repetition of the phrase servant of God, so is the repetition of the phrase the Lord, capital L-O-R-D here. And I think of Phil Wickham at this point. Yahweh, Yahweh. Because Yahweh is the Hebrew name for the Lord. At your name, the mountains shake and crumble. At your name, the oceans roar and tumble. At your name, angels will bow, the earth will rejoice, your people cry out, Lord of all the earth, we shout your name, shout your name, filling up the skies with endless praise, endless praise. Yahweh, Yahweh, we love to shout your name, O Lord. What is happening at this point is that the name of the Lord is being shouted through the entire cosmos. That this is the relational God who has remained involved with Job. Job has not dislodged himself from God, and God has not dislodged himself from Job. And so now here is God, and he's saying, this is my servant Job. Check him out. And it's possible this morning that God is saying to the entire cosmos, this is my servant, and I'm filling your name. Check him out. 
Check her out. As everybody leans in to see whether or not you remain faithful. Dr. Diane Kampf, of course, we've referred to her periodically in this series. She's an oncologist who writes, I had not seen Marcus, the German pastor, for several years. Mutual friends had alerted me that something distressing had happened in his life. Two months before my visit, Marcus had signed a release for his medical records and applying for some life insurance. The insurance company informed him that because he had multiple sclerosis, he was not eligible for coverage. Multiple sclerosis. Although his records contained the diagnosis, his doctors had never told him that they suspected this dreaded disease. She tells us she sat down with him in his living room. Until that moment, she writes, neither of us had mentioned his illness. But he guessed correctly that our friends would have told me. And then he makes this statement. It's extraordinary. I don't view myself as a sick man. I'm a healthy man with a diagnosis. Unquote. What's your attitude like in the midst of the trials of life? Well, for several years, she writes, Marcus had noted numbness in his left arm and leg, and that's why he had gone to see his family physician and then later referred to his neurologist. He began to think through the issues at hand, and yes, the symptoms were beginning to show themselves up, but he continued to remind himself that I am simply a man with a diagnosis, and I'm going to make an impact for God's glory. So what did he do? He decided to become a hospital chaplain, left the pastorate, moved in and out of ICUs and ERs and the likes to care for people that were going through difficult times. And what we find here is that Dr. Comp tells us, uh, yes, Marcus has met his share of emphatic failures since learning of his diagnosis. But by the grace of God, he's still standing tall. Quote, man is born broken, said Eugene O'Neill. He lives by mending. The grace of God is glue. Clearly, Marcus is a well-glued-together man. That speaks. How well-glued are you? And so now the glue has taken hold because not once, not twice, not three times, four times God refers to him as my servant Job. So what does he say now in verse 8? Now, therefore, take seven bulls, seven rams, go to my servant Job. Go to my servant Job, offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. They would have assumed that Job should have been offering up a burnt offering for himself, you see, in order to get right with God. But what we've got on hand here is a tremendous reversal where God now is taking the counselors who are extraordinarily religious but at the same time lack insight into the fact that God's ways are not necessarily their ways 
And there are added reasons why people suffer. Their view is simply, Job, you are suffering because you must have sinned. Therefore, repent of your sin, and then the suffering will be removed. Did you notice here, though, that in verse 7, we were told, The Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. Somebody's missing. Who? Elihu. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they're the ones that God is angry toward, but not Elihu. Why? Elihu was the only counselor, you see, that was able to point towards the Messiah. There are four messianic statements in the book of Job, and the only counselor who makes a messianic statement is Elihu. He's exempt. And now the one who they thought ought to be offering the burnt offering to God, he's the one they're going to have to go to and ask for that man to pray for them as they offer the burnt offering to God. Reversals. God delights in bringing reversals through his means of grace. This is humbling. This is expensive. Seven bulls, seven rams. Go now to Job, and my servant Job shall pray for you. But have you noticed they have not once throughout this entire book prayed for Job? Not once. So now God is incorporating intercessory prayer into this dialogue. And so he says, my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, and that all along they've made the assumption it's according to Job's folly that he's experiencing the suffering. This is the great reversal. Now, part of the great reversals in life means that you've got to get involved in praying for the people who've offended you. You're going to have to extend grace to the ones who've hurt you. For what you have spoken of me, as right as my servant Job has, you've not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And so Eliphaz, Temanite, Bildad, Shuhite, Zophar, Namanathite, they went and did what the Lord had told them. Now they deserve credit for that. But now notice what it says. It doesn't read, and the Lord accepted their sacrifice, does it? It says, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. I find that there's a relationship between intercession and intervention. So many of us want God to intervene without a proper sense of our need to intercede. And notice the intervention will fully take effect after Job prays. Not before. Intercessory prayer is critical. The elders in recent year have read of J. Oswald Saunders' book, Spiritual Leadership. He tells the story of when I was traveling on horseback in central China with Fred Mitchell. We came to a spot that was known as a robber hideout. The missionary accompanying us was keeping a sharp lookout when suddenly we came upon a body lying beside the path. The victim was obviously not long dead. 
few days later, I received a letter from my wife asking whether we had been in any danger on a date at a time she named. And on that particular night, she had been suddenly awakened with a strong impression I was in danger. She rose, she prayed until the burden lifted, peace returned. And on consulting my diary, I discovered that this midnight prayer synchronized with the time we were passing through that robber-infested area. God heard, answered the prayer for the safety of his servants. And here's God working with his servant. So now they come before Job at this point, and Job is going to have to intercede for them when all along, what they thought was that Job was going to have to be the one doing the sacrifice, and they are now having to be made right before God. And Job becomes their intercessor. And this is the extraordinary reversal that we see here in the midst of trials. Now, once you and I begin to grapple with this and how prayer itself works itself into this whole matter, there's a second consideration here comes out of verses 10 down through verse 17, that while longing for reversal in the midst of our trials in life, second of all, consider the reasons God chooses to bless his people. In verse 10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job, mark the word when. This is a timing issue. He restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends doesn't read when he prayed for his own sense of relief. Did you see that? No. Intercessory prayer was such that the sufferer is going to have to pray for the people who added to his sufferings. And as he prayed, notice the timing of this. This is extraordinary. This is another reversal. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. But now again, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Twice as much. And he was blessed before. We noted in the book of Esther some time back, the writer's digest columnist, Nancy Cresp, she explains how to use a character and plot reversals to introduce surprising twists when you write a story. She says, you want readers to be suddenly taken in a direction they had not anticipated. In fact, a writer must do this. The alternative is a story that can be predicted in its entirety after reading the first page. Now, notice here that these guys can't seem to anticipate the reversal that will occur. And so God is writing the pages. Now, here's the family. In verse 11, they came to him, then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And I want to know, where have they been? We haven't spotted them thus far. You ever had situations in life where it seems like family disappeared? When the trials seem to intensify? Or friends, co-workers, classmates, you name it. 
But people you thought might be part of standing at your ash heap, in reality, they, they detached themselves. Why? So often what I find pastorally is that when people have experienced loss in life, those closest to them don't know quite what to say. Sometimes with good intent, they distance themselves because they don't want to say anything wrong. Then there are others that simply don't know what to say, period. They distance themselves because they feel awkward. But what strikes me is that you don't have an awkward God. Job was not the one who had to approach God in the cosmic court. Rather, God was the one who approached Job at the ash heap. That's the way your God works. He gets involved in the ash heaps of life, you see. And so now, here comes the family. There's something about family and food, I guess. They came to him, all his brothers and sisters, all who had known him before, and ate bread with him. And his house. Well, I guess better late than ever. They showed him sympathy. Comforted him. But now the reader at this point looks at what comes next and says, um, this, is a little, this is a little hard. Hard to read. That the Lord had brought upon him, comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. How do I understand this? First of all, the Hebrew word also carries with the idea of disaster rather than evil. But also we have to bear in mind that in that time period, they weren't able to theologically make distinctions like we do to such the degree that when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we might talk about, well, God's permissive will, and there's God's directive will, and there's God's decretive will. They just saw everything as part and parcel of the will of God, you see. We keep studying the Bible and developing our thinking. At this point, they realize then God is sovereign, even as Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar would have readily acknowledged. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And now here, Job is finding that the relationships are slowly but surely coming back together. But now you read in verse 12, And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. You connect the beginning and the ending. And so you look at the word blessed and you say, now isn't that the very same issue likewise that was found in the book of Job at the beginning? And you're absolutely right. Because in that cosmic courtroom, when Satan appeared on the scene, Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand, touch all he has, and he'll curse you to your face. The blessing-curse tension throughout the Scriptures. Notice then, what God is doing at this point is that not only is he making a statement in the earthly realm to the counselors, he is making a cosmic statement at this point. The entire cosmos is now privy to the fact that Job has been loyal. What you and I have to bear in mind when we study the book of Job is that while his three counselors held to the principle of retributive justice, you get what you deserve, suffering is the result of sin, repent of the sin, and you'll, the suffering will be eliminated. And God takes them to task for that one. 
Elihu came along, and Elihu said, well, suffering can also be educational. And then he uses a messianic teaching to point Job towards Messiah to come. And that's why Job, of course, is able to make a powerful statement in the book of Job, I know that my Redeemer liveth. But now, still another reason for suffering appears on the scene. It's what we might call a testimonial suffering. That some of us are suffering because we are making a statement, offering a testimony to the entire cosmos that we don't put our trust and faith in God's blessings. We put our faith and trust in God. Who might take away the blessings. He gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, which in essence is exactly what Job would have sung when he experienced such extraordinary loss. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Meanwhile, his wife simply wanted him to curse God and die. But then I think of this man by the name of Polycarp, who was a pastor in Smyrna, modern-day Turkey, who, because of his loyalty in the first centuries of, of Christianity, was taken to the stake to be burnt. After his arrest, and he was led into the stadium, he was challenged to renounce his faith, to curse the Lord. You know what his response was? I have served the Lord Jesus Christ throughout my life. He has never done me any harm. How can I curse my king, the one who saved me? And as the torches were brought to him, as he was tied to the stake, Polycarp prayed, O oh Lord God, I bless you because you have granted me this day and this hour, which is consistent now with what we have here. So what the book of Job is now doing for us is that we look at human suffering and we keep expanding the various reasons why people are suffering. Maybe it's retributive justice. Maybe it's educational. Maybe it's because it is a testimony to the entire cosmos for reasons why we might not fully understand. We're loyal to God. And now the Lord, in turn, blesses the latter days of Job more than his beginning. So you and I are told here he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. In other words, God is now doubling what he had had previous. And it says he also had seven sons and three daughters. And you say, God, that's not doubling. Uh, they died, you see, those sons and daughters back in the opening chapters of Job. Is that doubling? Yes, it's doubling. There's ten on earth added to ten in heaven. And last time I checked my math, ten plus ten equals twenty. See what God is doing here. Now, notice the gender dynamics. In verse 14, he called the name of the first daughter... Jemima means dove. The name of the second, Keziah, means perfume. 
Name the third, Karen Hapak, which means horn of paint. Why? Glad you asked. It was what was meant to be applied to the eyebrows and the eyelids, the eyelashes. Cosmetics. Cosmetics for the cosmos as the testimony is being proclaimed. You're told in verse 15, in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. What I want you to see, parents, is what comes next. And put this in the framework of the time period of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, when, which is where Job lived. Their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. That was unheard of. This man's at cutting edge. He's looking out over the daughters as well as the sons. The sons and the daughters. He is offering now a testimony to all the people in the region and beyond of the way you do parenting. And he's blessing and he'll be blessed in return because part of the responsibility of the younger generation is the older generation ages is to look out over the parents as the parents had previously looked out over the young ones. This is God's ways, pulling everything together. And so in verse 16, after this, Job lived 140 years, saw his sons, his son's sons, Four generations, and Job died, an old man, full of days, both the quantity of time as well as the quality of experience with God through time. In his fine volume by, on the book of Job by Ray Steadman, Ray Steadman tells the story, starting with this question, have you seen the sound of music? If so, you know just a little of the real-life story of the Von Trapp family singers. The patriarch, George Von Trapp, decorated submarine captain during World War I, lost his wife to scarlet fever in 1922, sole parent then of seven children, hired Maria. Maria, eventually governess, would become his wife. Trapp's family was always filled, the home was filled with music, and the children learned to sing, harmonize. The Von Trapp family performed in concert halls throughout all of Europe. Well, during the 1930s, Ritter Von Trapp watched the rise of Nazism with alarm, and when the Von Trapps were invited to sing for Adolf Hitler's birthday celebration, Von Trapp refused. And in 1938, the Nazi government pressured him to accept a new commission as a submarine commander, and he refused and escaped with his family into the woods and then eventually made their way to America. And in 1942, the Von Trapp family bought a 600-acre farm near Stowe, Vermont, remodeled the farmhouse as an Austrian chalet, continued to tour, turned their chalet into the world-famous Von Trapp Family Lodge, where guests could ski and hike in the daytime and then experience concerts at night, 
But on November, rather December 20th of 1980, the lodge burned to the ground. Maria and the children were devastated. They'd endured so much adversity. And now the lodge was gone. In their discouragement, they questioned whether or not they should rebuild. But the day after the fire, a package arrived for the Von Trapp family. A friend had sent it several days before. When the Von Trapps unwrapped the package, they found it was a gift for the lodge. A large rug bearing a Latin inscription, which in English reads, Do not be terrified by adversity. Encouraged by the gift, Ray Stedman goes on to say, the Von Trapps immediately began rebuilding. And today, a new and more beautiful Von Trapp family lodge stands on the site of the old lodge. And when you enter the lobby, the first thing you notice is a large rug with a Latin inscription reminding you, reminding me, do not be terrified by adversity. You pull that together, and now you see the terms that God uses in 42 connect with the term that God used in chapters 1 and 2. You see the word blessed in chapter 42, and you see the whole matter of Satan attempting to dislodge the blessing in chapters 1 and 2. But through it all, Job remained loyal. And when you and I begin to think about the significance of that, then we are able to understand furthermore why James would say in chapter 5 of verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And you tie that together, and you realize God is great. God is good. God is gracious. To God be the glory. Thank you for studying the book of Job with me. Let's stand for a word of prayer. And so, Father, thank you now for this time. Month by month, we've been examining the reasons why people suffer. There's a multitude of reasons. Keep us from being simplistic. Keep us from making assumptions that lead to accusations. And through it all, Father, help us to find ways to minister at ash heaps. Bring grace. And bring the greatness of God into the ash heap experiences of life. Chances are this week, there's going to be a job coming our way. And he or she is going to need what's found in these chapters. Equip us to minister now at the point of need. We'll give you the praise in Jesus' name.